This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for this episode with the host of the Best Song Podcast, Jeff Cummings. Welcome back. At the end of the last episode, covering the songs nominated for the Academy Awards of 1970, I mentioned that a major shakeup in movie songs was coming in 1971. And from the look of things, Hollywood was powerless to stop the inevitable. By 1971, the old Hollywood songwriting guard was fading away. Many of the famous songwriters from the first 37 years of the Best Song Academy Award were either dead or retired. Others returned to their Broadway roots or found gainful employment on television. Tin Pan Alley, where most of the great songwriters from the 1930s and 1940s were plucked from obscurity by Hollywood directors, no longer existed. That forced directors and producers to look into the world of popular music to find their songwriters. Burt Bacharach, Henry Mancini, and Alan and Marilyn Bergman got their start writing pop songs and parlayed that into successful movie careers. Movies were rapidly changing as well, with vulgarity, sex, drugs, and nudity no longer taboo on the big screen. The word abortion was spoken with ease, and this was two years before the landmark Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision. With the civil rights movement giving black people more opportunities in every walk of life, including the film industry, black voices started to gain more prominence as well. In movies, that kick-started the brief but famous black exploitation genre, featuring stories about people in predominantly African-American communities. Melvin Van Peebles got things started with Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song in spring 1971, a movie that didn't do much to raise the stature of black people. Crime and drugs were rampant in the movie, and women were seen as grossly inferior. And the music was as low rent as the rest of the production value. In July 1971, director Gordon Parks, who had been at the forefront of the civil rights movement, decided to change the way blacks were being portrayed on film. His feature film directorial debut was called Shaft, following a private investigator named John Shaft, who was trying to rescue a kidnapped girl. It was one of the first movies to be directed by a black man and starring a black man. The script and the novel on which it was based was written by a white man, but having Parks direct it made a big statement. The man who wrote the music for the film was Isaac Hayes, who had already made a big name for himself as the writer of the hit record Soul Man in 1967. That song reached number two on the Billboard charts and kept out of the top spot by Lulu's recording of the title song from the 1967 film To Sir With Love. I talked about that song in episode 35, and I suggest you check out that episode if you haven't already. Sam Moore and Dave Prater won a Grammy for Best R&B Performance of Soul Man. Isaac Hayes also released a couple of albums of his own in the late 1960s, the most influential of them being Hot Buttered Soul. 
Most of the tracks feature lengthy funk instrumental introductions with organ, electric guitar, and piano before the vocal begins. It became one of the most popular and influential albums across all genres in 1969, ranking as high as number 8 on the Billboard album sales charts. That popularity made Gordon Parks' choice for a composer for Shaft easy. A movie about a smooth-talking, no-holds-barred black private detective needed a no-holds-barred black composer. But Isaac Hayes wasn't originally looking to write the music for a film. He wanted to play Shaft. Hayes was not known as an actor, so that audition went nowhere. But Gordon Parks knew that Isaac Hayes wrote music, and he was immediately convinced to lend his musical voice to Shaft. Hayes' contribution to Shaft cannot be ignored. Critics claimed in 1971 and in later years that his score elevated the movie to a higher platform that made it accessible and gave the film a more layered texture. But it's not the score that has become the lasting legacy for Hayes. It's the title song that he wrote that provided the big kick in the pants that movie songs needed. And the song was that 9.1 earthquake that I referred to at the end of the previous episode. Thematically, Theme from Shaft is no different from the title songs that came before it. It's setting up the film and the main character, just as The Ballad of High Noon, The Ballad of Cat Ballou, The Hanging Tree, Georgie Girl, and many others have done over the years. But the theme from Shaft knocks us out of our seats with the opening blast of a hi-hat cymbal and electric guitar as we watch John Shaft walk the streets of New York City. This musical introduction goes on for 2 minutes and 50 seconds before Isaac Hayes asks a question of his female backup singers that follows with the first curse word to be uttered in an Oscar-nominated song. He almost utters another one later, but the ladies stop him. The song is nearly five minutes of pure, unadulterated funk that had never poured out of a movie screen in such fashion. And it's the first rock-slash-funk song to be nominated for an Academy Award, and the first to fully do away with the studio orchestras used to create lush love songs or comedic tunes for musicals.
I'm timepiece brother. Goodbye. story goes that Isaac Hayes did not write the song and score alone, even though he gets sole composing credit. Hayes had never written a film score before and had arrangers write down his rhythm ideas, similar to what Irving Berlin did for his songs. But Hayes said that after the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences tried to declare the score ineligible, music branch member Quincy Jones stepped in and, quote, argued my case saying that even if I didn't physically write it down, they were my ideas, end quote. How much of the score and the song came from Isaac Hayes' head might never really be known, but it was an immediate hit when the film made its debut in July 1971. Two months later, an edited version of the theme song went all the way to number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Though Isaac Hayes sings the quintessential version of Theme from Shaft, he wasn't the only one to record the song. Artists as varied as Sammy Davis Jr. and Ray Conniff released their cover versions, none of which came close to matching Hayes' version. Here's the Ray Conniff version. 
theme from Shaft wasn't the only original song in Shaft. Isaac Hayes also wrote Do Your Thing, which plays under the scene when Shaft pretends he's a bartender at the bar across the street from where he lives. That gives him the opportunity to check on the two men who are watching his apartment window from there. The song doesn't have any connection to the scene other than being something you might hear play at a bar. Thing made it past the preliminary round of nomination voting as one of the top 10 songs. As I have mentioned before, there is no rule stating that only one song can be nominated from a film, but the love for Theme from Shaft didn't help carry Do Your Thing into the final five nominees. As a quick aside, Ernest Tidyman wrote the original novel and the screenplay for Shaft and became celebrated for creating such a powerful character. He wrote the screenplay for another cop movie that year, The French Connection. And Richard Roundtree, who played Shaft, has been regarded as the first black action hero, a title he's held with pride. The other four nominated songs of 1971 might be viewed as the same old, same old compared to the theme from Shaft. But new trends are not going to take over the movie industry completely. The next nominated song brought the Sherman Brothers, Richard and Robert, their first Oscar nomination since 1968. This one came from Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, which they began working on in the early 1960s when they were under contract at the Walt Disney Studio. Walt Disney was having a hard time getting the rights to Mary Poppins, so he suggested Bed Knobs and Broomsticks as the backup option. But Disney was never really thrilled with the songs the Shermans were presenting for Bedknobs. So when Mary Poppins finally came through, Disney was happy to shelve Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Richard Lester, who was set to direct the movie, said he would be happy to have the Shermans back when and if Bedknobs went back into production. But that was difficult to do since Bedknobs and Mary Poppins share similar stories about a magical woman who takes young children on adventures that include a visit to an animated world. 
1969 came around, Lester thought there was enough distance between Mary Poppins to give Bedknobs a go. So the Shermans returned to the Disney studio after their freelance excursion to work on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. The resulting song score for Bedknobs and Broomsticks isn't the best thing the Shermans wrote, and it was not only hard for them to return to the song score after almost 10 years away from it, but to work on it without Walt Disney, who died in 1966. By this time, Robert Sherman had soured on the songwriting process, and it was up to Richard to keep the engine going. The songs we get in Bedknobs and Broomsticks play a part in the plot, especially the one that got the Oscar nomination. It was The Age of Not Believing, a song that Angela Lansbury's amateur witch Eglantine sings to the oldest child that she has taken into her care at the start of World War II. That boy, Charlie, is 11 years old, which Eglantine says is the age when most children stop playing make-believe and have a hard time using their imagination. Eglantine uses the song to convince Charlie to join his younger siblings on the magical traveling bed, which he eventually does. When you rush around in hopeless circles, searching everywhere for something true, you're at the age of not believing when all the make-believe is through. That's Charlie to a T. When you set aside your childhood heroes and your dreams are lost upon a shelf, you're at the age of not believing and worst of all, you doubt yourself. Throw that into the wastebasket. You're a castaway where no one hears you on a barren isle in a lonely sea. What's that supposed to be? Poetry? Where did all the happy endings go? Where can all the good times be? Everyone on the bed who's going. You must face the age of not believing, doubting everything you ever knew. The knob, Paul. Until at last you start believing there's something wonderful in you. There's another movie released in 1971 about prepubescent kids, but it's not really a family film. Bless the Beasts and Children features music by Barry Dvorzen and Perry Botkin Jr., who started working together with the 1970 film RPM after having separate careers as songwriters and arrangers. They wrote five songs for the movie about a student revolution at a college in California, but the entire song score was not deemed significant enough to warrant an Oscar nomination in the new song score category that year. Stanley Kramer, who directed RPM, was impressed with Dvorzan and Botkin and asked them to write the underscore for his next film, Bless the Beasts and Children. They only wrote one song for that movie, and they finally got that Oscar nomination. The song is called Bless the Beasts and Children. The movie focuses on six boys at a summer camp, each of whom have mental or physical issues that make them outcasts at the camp. On one excursion, they find out that their counselor participates in a game where buffalo are killed for sport, justified as an attempt to thin the herd and avoid overpopulation. The boys are distressed about this, and one night they leave the camp on a long trip to rescue the buffalo. 
The song begins as we see them riding horses in slow motion under the opening credits, giving us a folksy ballad about the innocence of animals and children without a voice. Bless the peace and the children For in this world they have no voice They have no choice Bless the peace and the children For the That's Karen Carpenter singing the lead on this song, giving the Carpenters two movie songs in two years. I'm not sure how the Carpenters got connected to this song, but it was good fortune as the tune now had a good chance of great exposure. Unlike For All We Know, the Carpenters didn't release Bless the Beasts and the Children as the lead single, making it the B-side of their song Superstar in September 1971. The song couldn't crack the top 50 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts, and even the radio play couldn't help the movie, which didn't make a profit. Shirley Bassey also recorded a version of Bless the Beasts and the Children in 1972, 
but it only did well in the United Kingdom, and that didn't happen until well after the Oscar nominations were released. The song didn't attract any big names willing to record it, but another musical moment in the film had a very strong life that would likely make composers Perry Botkin Jr. and Barry Dvorzen very rich. The theme, called Cotton's Dream, used in a scene when the boys are on their journey and at the end when one of the boys dies, was used as background music for the wide world of sports in 1976 during the highlights for gymnast Nadia Komanich after the 1976 Olympics. But its most famous use has been playing on TV screens five days a week since 1973 as the opening music for the soap opera The Young and the Restless. This is how it's heard in Bless the Beasts and Children, not too different from what we all know from The Young and the Restless. Barry Dvorzen and Perry Botkin Jr. weren't the only first-time Oscar nominees in the Best Song category in 1971. That year, a 27-year-old named Marvin Hamlish earned his first nomination for writing the song Life is What You Make It with Johnny Mercer for the film Koch. The movie was directed by Jack Lemmon, marking the actor's first and last time as director. Mercer wrote the Oscar-winning song for Days of Wine and Roses, which featured Jack Lemmon. So it's not surprising that Lemmon asked Mercer to supply the lyrics for a theme song. Since Johnny Mercer and composer Henry Mancini were no longer a songwriting duo, Lemmon had to look elsewhere for a composer. Marvin Hamlish was the youngest person to be accepted into the Juilliard School of Music, doing so at age six. He found himself working as the rehearsal pianist for Barbara Streisand while she was playing Fanny Bryce on Broadway in Funny Girl. Hamlish's first film score was for The Swimmer in 1968, but he was doing well for himself before that, scoring a hit with Sunshine, Lollipops, and Rainbows for Leslie Gore in 1965. After working on a few comedies in 1969 and 1970, he was asked to work on Koch a part comedy, part drama story of a senior citizen played by the 50-year-old Walter Matthau in makeup. The nominated song, Life is What You Make It, is the most optimistic song Mercer has written in a while. It plays during the opening credits when we see Matthau's Koch playing with his grandson in the park.
Unlike most senior citizens, Koch isn't content with sitting around and letting life go by him. When he's faced with being put in a retirement community instead of living with his son and daughter-in-law, he decides to do what the song says. He doesn't let life pass him by. He befriends a pregnant teenager, provides her with a place to stay, and even delivers her child. As the chorus sang, life is what you make it, and what you make it is up to you. Koch definitely tries to make the most out of his life, even if he is a bit grating at times. With this nomination, 27-year-old Marvin Hamlish became the youngest songwriter to be nominated for an Oscar, taking the record away from Herb Magidson, who was 29 years old when he was nominated for the first Best Song Academy Award in 1935 for The Continental. Though Johnny Mercer's lyrics suggested a happier mood for the lyricist, working with a composer 34 years younger than him made Mercer feel more out of place in the Hollywood machine than he already had been. In an interview conducted not long after working on this movie, Mercer said, quote, I like the younger generation, but I don't want to write music for them. I don't dig their music, and they don't dig Mercer's. End quote. Henry Mancini apparently didn't need Johnny Mercer to help him create another Academy Award-nominated song in 1971. He found Allen and Marilyn Bergman to help him on a movie directed by another famous actor, Paul Newman. Sometimes a great notion came to Mancini through Harry Garfield, the director of the music department at Universal Pictures. Mancini had been friends with Newman for years and had wanted to work on one of his movies. When Newman told Mancini that country music was always played during the filming of this movie about a logging family in the backwoods of Oregon, the composer took the hint and wrote a score heavy on the country feel with harmonicas and banjos. The song he wrote for the opening credits, All His Children, takes that country music vibe and adds a flair of gospel music to it for a unique musical hybrid. The Bergmans came in with lyrics that describe the feeling of being a part of God's family, from the feeling of the sun on your face to feeling the world open its arms to you. What's interesting about the song is there isn't one mention of God, only using the word His. But you can figure out who He is pretty quick. of man 
part of the family of The family at the center of this movie, the Stampers, isn't overtly religious, except for one of the sons, played by Richard Jekyll. So it's likely that the song was written from his perspective, since he's the only one quoting Bible passages, praying, and talking about being reborn. Jekyll earned an Oscar nomination for his performance, and he is part of a very, very emotionally charged scene that I don't want to give away because it comes along quite unexpectedly. When the film ends, All His Children is played again, and this time it feels like the lyrics point to the discord between the Stampers and the union of loggers who are on strike. The lyrics could suggest that since we are all God's children, we shouldn't fight or disagree, but get along and serve one common purpose, which in this case is moving logs down a river. Charlie Pride sang All His Children in the film version, continuing his success as a barrier-breaking black singer in the country music ranks. He became a crossover success with several songs between 1969 and 1971, prompting his hire to sing this Oscar-nominated song. The song was a big hit on the country charts, getting as high as number two, eclipsed only by Pride's other big song that year, Tell an Angel Good Morning." Only a couple other people dared to record this song, including Bing Crosby, who was accompanied by Count Basie on this spring 1972 release. When you're standing alone with the mountains and the sea, where the arms of the world open wide Where the truth is as plain as the falling rain And sure as the time and the tide You know we're all nomination for all his children, the Bergmans earned their fourth consecutive Oscar nomination. Now that's not a record, but Marilyn earning her fourth songwriting nomination is. In 
she breaks the tie she had with Dory Previn, who had three Oscar nominations to her credit as the most nominated female songwriter in Oscar history. In four short years, Marilyn Bergman is shattering the glass ceiling that Dorothy Fields, Anne Rennell, Sylvia Fine, and Dory Previn cracked in their careers. So this is not a bad batch of nominated songs, but there is one 1971 musical film that didn't get any love from the Academy, at least in the best song category. That film was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which has become one of the most loved live-action original musicals of the 20th century. But it wasn't that well-received in 1971. Critics such as Roger Ebert thought it was great, but it only earned $4 million, Not a hefty sum in 1971 when you consider that the top movie of the year, Fiddler on the Roof, made close to $30 million. Starring Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka, the movie featured a song score by Leslie Brickus and Anthony Newley, who I guess was finally able to convince Brickus to let him in on the songwriting fun. It was the first time Tony and I had written together for five years, Brickus wrote in his autobiography. It could as well have been five minutes. We fell, as always, instantly into the smooth and natural work rhythm with which our collaboration has always been blessed, and the songs appeared obligingly on the page within a matter of days. End quote. The only hitch was that they were writing on separate continents, Brickus in France and Newley in the United States. I could play just about every song from the movie as one that could have deserved a nomination over, say, Life is What You Make It, but I'll just mention two. The first song we hear in the film praises Willy Wonka and the candy he makes. The Candyman is sung by actor Aubrey Woods as kids sample goodies in his candy shop, and he gives them handfuls of candy for free while he sings. Who can take a sunrise, sprinkle it with dew? For it in chocolate and the miracle or two. It's the Candyman. The Candyman can. Candyman can. Posse mixes it with love and makes the world taste good. Who can take a rainbow, wrap it in a sigh, soak it in the sun and make the strawberry lemon pie? The Candyman. The Candyman. Candyman can. The Candyman can, cause he mixes it with lava, makes the world taste good. Willy Wonka makes everything he bakes satisfying and delicious. Talk about your childhood wishes, you can even eat the dishes. can take tomorrow, dip it in a dream, separate the sorrow and collect up all the cream, the candy man, the candy man can, the candy man can, cause he mixes it with love and makes the world taste good, and the world tastes good. Cause the Candyman thinks it true. Brickus was very upset with the way Aubrey Wood sang in the movie. 
Bricus wrote that Woods irrevocably destroyed the Candyman, going even further to call Woods tuneless. But all was not lost. I've mentioned in previous episodes how close Leslie Bricus and Sammy Davis Jr. were as friends, so it's only natural that Davis would take one of the songs from Willy Wonka and turn it into one of his own. That's what he did with the Candyman, and in June 1972, it gave Sammy Davis Jr. his only Billboard number one hit. Gene Wilder gets a song as well, and it's Pure Imagination. This comes when Wonka lets the children run free in the chocolate room, the first time they see the real wonders of the factory. Wilder wasn't really known as a singer before this, and I'm sure audiences were pleasantly surprised to learn that he has a pretty decent singing voice. Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. We'll begin with a spin traveling in the world of my creation, what we'll see will defy explanation. If you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. Anything you want to do it Want to change the world There's nothing to it Hurry up, Violet! This way, Grandpa! No life I know to compare with pure imagination Living there you'll be free If you truly wish to be Brickus and Newley were nominated in the original song score or adaptation category, but no single song nomination for them. Perhaps voters were having a hard time picking between The Candyman and Pure Imagination, or any of the others for a song nomination, and the votes canceled out each other. As I mentioned before, there was no rule that only one song per film could be nominated, and this might have been one of the great opportunities for a double song nomination from one film, and not Shaft. The seventh James Bond film was released in December 1971, called Diamonds Are Forever. Sean Connery came back to play James Bond, and Shirley Bassey returned to sing the title song. Diamonds Are Forever was written by John Barry and Don Black, who wrote the unpopular James Bond song Thunderball back in 1965. This time, Barry and Black don't push the envelope too much with Diamonds Are Forever, a song that applies to the Bond villain who is trying to corner the diamond smuggling business. The songs say that love ends, but diamonds will never disappoint you. Marilyn Monroe and Carol Channing before her did a better song about the benefits of owning diamonds.
Diamonds are forever They are all I need to please me They can stimulate to tease me Diamonds are forever Hold one up and then caress it Touch it, stroke it and undress it I can see every part Nothing hides in the heart to hurt me Shirley Bassey did her best with Diamonds Are Forever, but we're still looking for a James Bond song to break through and become an Oscar nominee. Perhaps now that the Academy is giving a thumbs up to the funky theme from Shaft, it won't be long before James Bond gets his day in the sun in the music categories. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association found an almost entirely different slate of nominees to nominate for the Golden Globes. Only two of the songs that the Academy would announce as Oscar nominees a month after the Golden Globe ceremony, Life is What You Make It and Theme from Shaft, made the list. The other three Golden Globe nominees are songs from very obscure films that the Golden Globe voters would have seen because they're film critics and entertainment journalists, but likely were off the radar of the majority of Academy Music Branch members. One of the Golden Globe nominees was Long Ago Tomorrow, by the Oscar-winning team of Burt Bacharach and Hal David for the movie The Raging Moon. That movie featured Malcolm McDowell as one half of a romantic couple, made more dramatic by the fact that they are both wheelchair-bound. The movie was made in England and was a bomb there, which wasn't a good sign when it got to the United States. B.J. Thomas, who sang Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, is back for another potential Bacharach-David hit but it was not to be. Long Ago Tomorrow doesn't resonate with American audiences, which might have hurt its chances of getting attention from the Academy's music branch. Maybe I'll be the things I dream And not the things I see Change the world before it changes me and baby my life will always be just as happy as it seems long
tapéis Maybe I get to find myself Before I'm lost in space And maybe your love Will always be Just as faithful as it seemed Long ago or tomorrow Long ago or tomorrow Long ago or tomorrow In my dreams the Hollywood Foreign Press Association went with Life is What You Make It as their choice for the best song of 1971, giving Johnny Mercer his second consecutive Golden Globe win. That tied him with Ned Washington and Dimitri Tiomkin as the only two-time Golden Globe winners in the song category, a distinction that was quite impressive given that the award had only started officially seven years earlier, so those three men were cornering the market. Johnny Mercer probably didn't want to be stung twice when it came to thinking about winning a fifth Academy Award. The previous year, when he and Henry Mancini won the Golden Globe for Whistling Away the Dark, he watched others take the Academy Award instead of him. Records indicate that Mercer didn't bother to attend the April 10, 1972 Academy Award ceremony, feeling that fortune was not on his side. His old writing buddy, Henry Mancini, was going to be at the Academy Awards, taking on his first stint as the show's musical director. That meant he would be conducting the orchestra underneath the stage, just a few feet from where Oscars would be handed out. If all his children happened to be an Oscar winner, it would be just about 20 steps to take his Oscar. In the meantime, he would be responsible for playing music cues from films that won Academy Awards in each category and also conducting the music for each original song performance, especially his own. Well, with the exception of one song. Now, it's safe to say that many of the songs performed at the Oscar show are done live, but that was not the case with Theme from Shaft. I don't think the audience really cared, because the spectacle of it was unlike anything that had ever been put on an Oscar stage. Women dressed in belly-bearing midriffs danced around a multi-tiered set before Isaac Hayes came out on a platform while pretending to play a synthesizer. Dressed in his signature chainmail shirt, complete with sunglasses, Hayes came out with smoke effects and flashing lights while about three dozen dancers gyrated about him. It looked like something out of a fever dream, or maybe a bad acid trip. At the end of the song, a bunch of smoke rose from the floor and Hayes disappeared in it. Talk about heavy, co-host Sammy Davis Jr. said after the performance. You have to feel bad for the people who had to perform their songs after Isaac Hayes. He performed second after the Carpenters sang Bless the Beasts and the Children. Following Hayes was Johnny Mathis for the very laid-back Life is What You Make It, and Charlie Pride singing All His Children with the Mitchell Boys Choir. That marked the first time three black performers sang at the Academy Awards in the same year, and they all did it in a row. Joel Gray, who was already getting some Oscar talk for his role as the Master of Ceremonies in Cabaret, which had come out two months before this Oscar ceremony, 
was pulling double duty that night. He performed a song about Hollywood at the start of the show called Lights, Camera, Action, written by variety show composer Billy Barnes. He then returned to announce the winner of Best Song. Before reading the nominees, he mentioned Charlie Chaplin, who was going to receive an honorary Oscar later in the evening, saying that Chaplin was a composer in addition to his many other talents, which the Academy would recognize at the next Oscar ceremony. And Gray quoted the line from Cabaret, saying to Chaplin, Bienvenue, bienvenue, welcome. With that done, Gray read the list of nominated songs, then ripped open the envelope as if there were a million dollars inside. But it was just the name of the Oscar-winning song, and that was the theme from Shaft. Instead of the chainmail shirt he wore for the performance, Hayes accepted his Oscar in a blue fur-lined tuxedo. He saved the best thanks for last, singling out his grandmother for, quote, her prayers that kept my feet on the path of righteousness, end quote. It would be her 80th birthday in a few days, and Hayes said the award would be her present. And with that song, the Oscar for Best Song took a major leap forward, and not just for making an entirely new genre part of the list of Oscar-winning songs. Isaac Hayes became the first Oscar-winning songwriter to perform the song he wrote in the original film version. He was also just the sixth solo songwriter to win the award in the category's 38-year history, and also the first black man to win the award. But the win went even further than that. Isaac Hayes became the first black person to win an Oscar outside the acting categories, and just the third after actors Hattie McDaniel and Sidney Poitier. Many point to McDaniel and Poitier as barrier breakers, and they certainly were, but Isaac Hayes took it a bit further. Four other black men had previously been nominated for non-acting Oscars, including one in film editing and three in the score categories. Many years later, Hayes would say it was an accomplishment he was happy to tell his grandchildren. Hayes was 29 years, 7 months, and 21 days old when he won the Academy Award. That was six months shy of beating the record for the youngest winner of the original score Oscar. Herb Magison still held on to that distinction, a record he has held since he won the first Oscar for Best Song in 1935 at 29 years, 1 month, and 10 days old. Isaac Hayes' work on Shaft would bring him many more awards. He won the Golden Globe for Best Score and two Grammys for Best Instrumental Arrangement and Best Score from a Motion Picture. Shaft would be the pinnacle of Hayes' career and would mark his only Oscar nominations. He wrote the scores for a couple other exploitation films in the 1970s, but they didn't receive a tenth of the attention or acclaim as his work for Shaft. He kept writing songs and performing through the 1980s and 1990s, and he became a part of the main voice cast for the animated TV show South Park in 1997 as Chef. Life is What You Make It was the final Oscar nomination for Johnny Mercer, and the final movie song he would write. He attempted to stage a musical with Andre Previn in London in 1974, but other than featuring Judy Dench in the cast, there's not much to say about it. But there's something to be said about a songwriting career that lasted through four decades of changing music styles, with Mercer still able to stay relevant until he was unable to adapt. 
As a way to honor those who had made songwriting so popular in its early days, he helped create the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1970, an organization that now has named an award after him. In 1971, he staged an intimate concert of his best work, and for just one more flickering moment, Johnny Mercer was at the top of his game. Mercer died in 1976 after being diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor, having become one of only three four-time Oscar-winning songwriters, with his 18 nominations standing second only to Sammy Kahn. From Jeepers Creepers to Days of Wine and Roses and everything in between, Johnny Mercer's track record for writing hit songs is nearly unparalleled. The old guard of Hollywood songwriters was slowly fading away, but as we'll see, movie songs are not going to decline in quality. Some of the nominated songs we'll hear in the next few episodes have become classics, thanks not only to the people who performed them, but to the people who wrote them. We'll talk about those songwriters and many more as we progress through this history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Song. Thanks for singing along with me on this episode, and I look forward to doing it again with you on the next episode. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.